Welcome to the Cap City Authors Podcast. This is episode 127. Once again, you've got Chris and Brian. And today we are going to talk about shooting DMR-oriented rifles to intermediate distances on relatively small targets. Um, lessons learned, both on the marksmanship side, um, what gear worked, what gear didn't work so well. Um, yeah, all those kind of fun things. Absolutely. Um, it, so we have access to a, a range where we can shoot out to 300 yards um, the range has a number of different barricade type obstacles, different things available yeah. to the shooters on the 300 yard line. Um, and, and so basically we kind of did a, a round robin, I think is what we ended up calling it. Yeah. Um, seven deal. minutes per, per thing. Per yeah. Day. And so, you, you know, we basically, the gist of it was, was trying to find a position that you could get steady in and make things work from, um, and then manage the gun from there. We had... Uh, basically four teams of two guys each uh, and an A and B shooter on each team. And the gist of it was for seven minutes, your two-man team had a barricade to yourselves and the A shooter would shoot from your team, then the A shooter from team two, then the A shooter from team three, and the A shooter from team four. And then that gave the B shooter from each time team time to get into position to take their shot. And each shooter had two shots to make a hit, um, basically on plates ranging from four inches to 12 inches out of 300 meters. Um, so the gist of it was not just about, can I hit a steel plate at 300 yards? It was also a lot about getting into a different position each time, not utilizing the same position from said barricade and figuring out how to get in and out of that position relatively quickly. Um, but then also how to be able to be on, on the sights, on the target, ready to go. So that, you know, when the guy in front of you made his shot, you could immediately flip your safety off and make your shot. Um, you know, so the point of this was also a little bit of, as much as it was shooting, it's about getting into a position and finding a position. Um, the, the barricades are, are, are varied, or the obstacles, whatever you want to call them, are varied. Uh, there are a bunch of them. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that, uh, just kind of yeah. in general terms. So um, if, if, you've, if you've never shot off of a farm gate and you it have sucks. access to somebody's property that has a farm gate that you're allowed to shoot on and you can safely do so, um, farm gates are slippery and round and move around and they suck to shoot from. Um, great barricade to try and figure out how to get your lower body, whether that's whether that's in a full Monica, whether that's on one knee or whether that's just tall enough to stand off of or whatever. Um, you know, but the, the a farm gate, great obstacle. Uh, curiously enough, a BFR, a big fucking rock. Um, yeah, or a couple of big couple of, couple of big fucking rocks. Um, you don't think a whole lot about it, but again, rocks can have texture or they can be slippery. It depends on what kind of rock, depends on where it rides on your gun. Also depends dramatically on the height. Um, a, a rock that's just a little too low sucks to shoot from. A rock that's just a little too high sucks to kneel from. A rock that's a little too short to stand from sucks. It, it just, you know, and so, you know, figuring out how to set up in the, in this case, the two rocks had a pinch point in between them. So that if you could set up in that pinch point, but the pinch point wasn't exactly aligned downrange, so you had to kind of work sideways on the pinch point, and just working your way through different kind of barricades like that, and figuring yeah. out how to get set up, and what gear you might want to have with you to do that. Um, the PRS guys we kind of make fun of because it looks like they're all headed to a pillow fight when they walk up to the line, right? Um, they've each got two or three bags hanging off of them. They got one on the gun, one on their hip. You know, and it's like, hey, where's the sorority girls? You know, what, 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 are, you, what are we up to? Can I, can I come watch? You know, um, I, I, just, just joking, Steve. Um, but, you know, it, it is interesting how some of these guys have learned to maximize something as simple as what would have been a shot bag 
filled up with sand or or something lighter like that, some kind of material, some kind of media. Um, walnut holes that you would typically use to polish brass with got shoved in those bags because it was lightweight or corn media. Um, but something like that attached to the fore end of the gun allows you to incredibly rapidly hop into a position and stabilize the gun a little bit, get a little more grip on something like a farm gate or a slippery rock or something like that and, and figure out how to make it work. Um, so, so, you know, we spent, uh, I don't know, almost two hours basically, right? Yeah. I mean, basically shuttling from position to position every seven minutes and running through and just trying to make your hits. And I will say that everybody kind of started to figure things out, you know, kind of gelled into how does this position work for me? What's an optimal height? Okay, now I made my hit at the optimal height. Now let's go to a sucky height that doesn't work that I can't quite get there and figure out how to just steady things down and make it happen. Well, and how to stay steady on the various positions for 15 to 30 seconds too because you yeah. set up while the previous team was shooting. Exactly. And yeah. then you had to be set up, you know, on your target. And we talk about the targets, you know, they were – Effectively, one MOA, about two and a half MOA, and then four MOA, given yeah. the distance. Yeah. So, depending on the ammo, depending on the gun, there was not a lot of forgiveness on the targets. Absolutely. And and I'm gonna and I'm gonna use Kleckner's um, kind of thing where you take that 3.66 conversion from mils to to inches and and say no, it's just four. Just call it four. And if you call it four, now we're talking a three MOA target off of an awkward position and a slightly smaller. So you know his his conversion's a little little more generous, a little easier to work with numerically speaking. And, and it's, it's an interesting conversation. Um, I, I will say that like the, the 12 inch plate or the, the three MOA target, four MOA target, whatever you want to call it, um, was not difficult to hit from most of the positions. Um, one of the things that you come back to, you know, we, a lot of folks spend a lot of time running rifles up close, um, on, on really what are non-critical target sizes on, on really, Nobody's chasing craniocular, and craniocular shots 20 yards and in are, are really as much about sight offset as they are about hold. And that becomes a very big target at 20 to 25 yards, that credit card does. Um, so, so this is really kind of a back to fundamentals from a standpoint of managing the trigger on the gun. Um, it was kind of a back to fundamental standpoint as well as finding out how many points of contact you could get either with the ground or with something solid. Um, it was a, it was a reminder about body position. If you can find some natural point of aim and, and you think some of these oddball positions from barricades, what we'd call field positions or real world positions, not range positions. Um, you know, it's like, well, there's not necessarily a standard, you know, super good position you'd get into. Like if you're at Camp Perry shooting the nationals, the reality check is there's a modification of that position in almost every case you're taking something and modifying it. And so having a basic understanding of solid shooting positions, understanding, you know, why you want to avoid bone on bone contact, why you want to overlap joints to lay an elbow a little bit over your knee to get set up, um, seeing if you can avoid pulse points. Um, if you're, you know, look at your body type, look at me, you know, I'm a chub. So for me, some of the sitting positions where I'm leaning forward sitting or leaning forward, um, on the ground. I'm fat. My belly's in the way, and it and and guess what? When you push all that fat from your belly up into uh, your rib cage, uh, you know breathe. things like your diaphragm and your lungs don't work quite as well. Um, so you find yourself sucking wind sitting on the ground, just trying to get in a position. Um, you know, so rule number one of zombies: cardio, right? Yeah. You know, so same thing for shooting anything. Um, being in a little bit better shape, I think, would have helped me in a couple of those positions and a few other people too. Um, but it was interesting to watch some of the dudes that are more fit 
be able to get in and out of those positions quicker and utilize them with a little less stress. It wasn't that I couldn't do it. I wasn't as efficient or as effective as some of those guys were too. But just pushing through those basic fundamentals, getting in a good position, good natural point of aim, points of contact as low as you can get, and then managing the trigger, um, that, that's what it's made of. So nothing's really changed from any other kind of shooting. You're just applying it to a barricade and a smaller target. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it, it, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that a lot. So. Yeah. Uh, to add to that, you know, having good um, flexibility and mobility becomes mm -hmm. very important. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a, yeah. a very, at least in our world, a, an area that is not focused on when PT gets talked about. Sure. Uh, sure. Being able to, to kind of bend into some goofy positions. Yeah. Uh, get, you know, get shoulders moved around, get hips moved around. Yeah. Uh, really becomes important when you're trying to get stable behind a thing that you're a little bit too big for or a little bit too small for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> you, you can, you can make fun of the dudes that take yoga all you want, but A, they're hanging out in a class with hot chicks. Um, and B, they're probably more bendy than you when it's all said and done. And there, there is an application for flexibility. Um, and, and as much so mobility, um, you know, we call, I think the two are somewhat interchangeable, um, if there's not complete overlap anyway. Uh, and yeah, definitely being able to get some of those positions, you know, my, my knees don't like getting in some of those positions, but I do try to stretch every day after I get done working out and while the body's still warm mm -hmm. and, and I've been focusing more on that for the last year. And there were some positions that I found that I could actually get any cranked up where I wanted it, where I don't know if I would have been able to last year. So that, that was definitely key as well. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, if you find yourself in a position where you're, um, we use, uh, the, the, if everybody's familiar with rice patty prone, rice patty prone is simply squatting down, but it's a squat with your heels on your ground. Um, one of our guys is a big dude and he was a catcher as a kid. So he's used to, he's, he's comfortable being on his toes squatted down. Um, not quite a stable position for me, but a pretty stable position for him. And he was able to yeah. make some hits like that. Um, and again, not somebody who's super flexible, not somebody who, you know, um, you know, it, it, he's working to get in those positions, but because he knew what was comfortable for him, adapted and did what worked for him and made it work. Um, the same position watched another guy do rice patty prone heels nailed to the floor. And this is a dude who spends time in the gym and regularly does, you know, deadlift squats and things of that nature probably has a little better mobility. Um, you know, and, and you could tell it's just adapt, figured out how to make it work for you, you know, versus what works for the other guy may not work. Um, there are also some, some, one of the barricades is a rooftop, yeah. is a simulator rooftop. Um, the simulator rooftop has some cleats that you can anchor your feet on, which is kind of like cheating because a regular rooftop is super easy to slide off of. I've fallen off a two in my life. Ask me about it sometime. Um, I can fall off a roof. The reality is having the cleats were nice, but the cleats are in a bad place. Yeah. Um, again, that flexibility, doing the stretching and stuff like that, I found this year, I was able to settle in a lot easier on the rooftop than I was last year. Um, did a whole bunch of ab work that morning, so I kept cramping up. My back and my, my ribs kept cramping up, but I could turn and get where I needed to be long enough to make the shot and then cry like a little girl as I crawl off the barricade after making a hit. Um, so, so, you know, again, mobility, flexibility, finding comfort, finding... Uh, I, I noticed early on as well, we talked about, I talked about trigger control, managing the trigger. Um, you got to step back into fundamentals. I know I've said that three times already. There were a couple times where on I'm trying to like I'm in a not good position I'm in a not happy position and I didn't realize it necessarily and you're trying to drive the trigger you're like oh there's my set picture oh there it goes oh there it's back oh there it goes oh mash it 
and it never made the hit mashing yeah. it. Maybe same, same maybe once, here. maybe one out of ten made the hit mashing it, um, and I didn't try it enough times to find out. So I only gave it about three opportunities before I'm like, I quit being an idiot and squeeze the trigger. Um, the one I stood up and shot offhand at 300 uh, was able to make the hit by just letting the trigger break. I mean, I made a miss or two as well, but also made a hit or two as well. You know, on that 12-inch plate, and then another one on that 8-inch plate. I never did try for the 4-inch standing because there's, I just don't have the stability for it. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the, I don't know if you guys know what a tank barricade is. Uh, go back and watch Saving Private Ryan. Uh, there's chunks of I-beam welded together in the water that are made to make things that float hang up on them punch holes in them or keep them from coming ashore. Um, it's basically looks like if your, your kids got jacks that they bounce on the ground or the little game that jacks used to play with, it looks similar to that. It's three pieces or four pieces of, of steel uh, welded together to make something nasty that you can hang up on pretty easily with a vehicle or with a, a tank or with a boat or whatever. Um, they, they have one of these that's a four by four dealio. Um, there were some positions with the, the trap that were rather erotic. Um, it looked like some guys were, were maybe having a little more comfort than they should have been. Um, it, but also found, too, running a bipod, getting on the bottom end where it meets the ground and using the cleat for the bipod, in this case a Magpul bipod, has a, a spinning knurled nut underneath that allows you to tighten things up or loosen things up. Um, using that nut and pulling putting it over that piece of 4x4, four four, pulling it back into it and letting the knurling grab the 4x4 four four gave me an incredibly stable position. I was able to make a number of 1MOA hits at 300 yards from that position. But then when you got up on top of it and were making love to it, not quite as stable but still doable. So, yeah, that um, doing non-conventional things with the bipod yep. worked really well on the rocks as well. Mm -hmm. uh, being able to mm -hmm. get the, in this case, the plastic legs, kind of where the legs meet up with the rest of the, the chassis for the bipod. Yep. To get jammed into the the crack between the two rocks yeah. and got really stable. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that that's that's something that I really hadn't. I've I've heard people talk about, but I don't know that I'd ever tried loading the bipod backward um, because I think a lot of times you think of bipods on like cruiser guns, full auto guns, uh, belt fed guns, and everybody talks about leaning in, loading the bipod, getting on it so that you can keep your groups, so you can do bursts and right. keep them in the same area. Um, when you're only firing one round, pulling the gun back into you is probably not as stable as loading the bipod in the forward direction, um, but it worked brilliantly for, for a single shot going where you wanted it to go. Um, and I also noticed, too, that the knurling on that was sharp enough on the wood that I could hang onto the wood and actually see. There were a couple times I saw the hit on the 4-inch plate, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, because from other less stable positions, the gun's moving a little more, so that's pretty cool. Um, so that worked. There's a... Another barricade where there's a big open area with pieces of fire hose yeah. between. Loose. Um, loose. But and you could, again, load load the yep. fire hose with a bipod, a vertical grip, um, something like that. And then or that pull cue in it with your hand. Became a very yep. stable position. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, able to make hits from there, uh, you know, back to the height thing. The middle one was perfect. You know, it was Goldilocks, but the top one and the bottom one were at really crappy heights to try and use from anywhere else. Um, I tried to use the taller one from kneeling and couldn't get there, so I stood up and kind of got spread out, you know, to kind of sumo wide leg position and was still able to use it and make the hit on the big plate, but I struggled beyond that because you could definitely tell the movement where you're stable and where you weren't, so for sure. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, the, the, spent a lot of time just, just on the gun, on the sights, 
getting set up and before it was your turn to shoot and you could really get settled into a position or find out how bad a position you'd chosen and then struggle through trying to make it work anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, do we want to talk about what, because we had guys running everything from dot optics to running magnified stuff. Do you sure. want to run through that? Yeah. Um, we had uh, one of our tribe uh, chose to run just a good old-fashioned Aimpoint Comp M4 uh, on his gun, um, made successful making hits on the 12-inch plate all day long, no problem. Um, actually made a standing hit on the 12-inch plate uh, freehand, um, or offhand, I guess. Um, we had a lot of guys running low-power variables, a lot of 1-6s, to sixes, um, a number of Credo 1-8s, the Trigicon yeah. Credo 1-8, or the, the older AccuPower 1-8, um, which is, to my mind, is just becoming, it, it's just a brilliant optic for what we're doing with it. Um, and then you were running the big boy. Um, what's that? Two and a half yeah, to 20. Two and a half to USO, USO the TS 20. Um, yeah. two and a half to 20. Yeah. Um, with the, talk the about that, how radical. you were running it. Talk about how you were running it because, because it was differential. You weren't, you weren't running 20. You were, you know, making it yeah. work. Yeah. Usually with that optic, um, the reticle is very fine so that it doesn't become super coarse at 20. Okay. And for me, the happy place with being able to see the subtensions on the reticle, okay, because I wasn't dialing um, with my gun. I had one mil hold. Okay. At three hundred, so I was using the the hashes. Um, that became running it at like ten to twelve was kind of a okay. happy place. Okay. If I was at eight, it was a little bit too fine to really see the subtensions. Okay. Um, but yeah, the ten to twelve worked really well. Uh, there was one time I was able to get super stable with the Magpul bipod and the prone. Yeah. I think I cranked it up to 16 to shoot the little plate. Yeah. And, and which didn't seem to be a problem for you at all. Um, um, but going going beyond 12 and not being super stable was just, it was bad. There was well, you see, you see, a, you see all the movement. Yeah. Yeah all, the, yeah. all of the movement in the gun got magnified. And when they talk about accepting your wobble, you know, that's great when you're standing with iron sights. Um, you know, shooting at a small target at distance, except your wobble's fine. Uh, but when you magnify that wobble by 10x or 15x or 20x, it, it, it messes with your brain just a little bit. Um, and I don't know, I, not being a long-range shooter, I don't know if that's something that you, there are ways of coping with that, or you just don't use that much power, or I, I just don't know, because I've never done that yeah, well, around. I think it's the PRS guys run, you know, three-ounce triggers, and it doesn't matter. That could be part of the conversation, too. I guess I'm looking at it as I don't hold the gun steady enough, and not holding the gun steady enough would be enough for me. Um, I'm not so much trigger management under that kind of magnification, but just literally seeing how much you actually move. You're like, ah, it's hard to fight it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I ran into the same thing. I kind of took your advice with the 8X, you know, over getting into the 1 to 8 with the Credo, getting into the idea that I, I don't need to run it at 8 unless there's a reason to run it at 8. And I found myself at five or six for a lot of these. Um, I ran it on as a one X a couple of times just to get the hold over and confirm that the, the mill hold at 300 was where I needed it to be. Um, and, and that worked just fine. Um, but driving it back to like five or six, you didn't get as much wobble out of it, but you got plenty of magnification to yeah. shoot at those. And then settling down to eight, there are toward the end, I was calling shots for other guys that were kind of still struggling with some of the different positions and just got down on the bipod on the ground and put it on eight and you could see all day long and then was able to run those three plates, probably three shots in under two seconds, four, eight, and 12 off the bipod with an under eight X. So I think that magnification range for an LPVO is is. Especially on, there. on an AR-15, yeah. like you really don't need more than eight. 
and I and I would and I would argue you probably don't need more than six, but I enjoyed having eight. It was yeah. it was pretty sweet. So, uh, and I would say if you wanted to throw that gun on a three hundred eight gun, now all of a sudden if you were talking five six hundred meters, um, you'd still have the juice to do some of those same things we were doing a three hundred. Yeah. yeah, or if you're running, you know, you get a dedicated DMR gun, you're shooting seventy sevens out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so dots, LPVOs, big scopes. Um, I think pretty much everybody was running like standard mounting heights. I don't think anybody was doing anything extra high. Um, you know, there wasn't any of that, any of that stuff. So everybody was able to get good cheek welds. The guns, um, we said, you mentioned early on that most of these were DMR setup guns. There were a couple guys running shorties with suppressors, yeah. running 11 half inch guns with suppressors. Um, and, but, but running LPVOs on them and making the hits, no problem. Um, and then there, and, and most of the guns were free floated. Uh, the one guy running the dot optic, uh, was running a non free floated standard M4 ish gun. Um, and like I said, John was, John was banging the plates. No problem. Yeah. You know, once he, once he got on the trigger, I think there was no problem. The early on was a little bit of struggle time figuring out what the hold was with the dot, etc. And then he was just beating them up just like everybody else was. Um, yeah. I will say having, you know, a free floated rail and we've kind of preached this yeah. makes it significantly easier um, to use the various props and improvised positions yeah. for support Yep, because you don't put any stress in the barrel. Yeah. Um, so there's no point of aim, point of impact shift. Well, and you, in, in even running a standard foreign, even if you can grind the foreign into something, you're still putting, you're still affecting the barrel. Um, because of the end cap on it. So there's a reality check there that that's, that's going to be part of the conversation. Um, you know, so with that, in that, that six or seven inch forend really limits the amount of space you have to yeah. put on a barricade. So if the barricade's oddly shaped, maybe you can't get as far off of it as you need to, to get a solid knee or something like that. Whereas if you've got a, you know, 13 to 16 inch forend on a, or 13 to 15 inch forend on a 16 inch barrel, um, you can, you got a lot of space on that rifle that you can get in contact with the barricade or with whatever you're shooting off of and, and not worry about hitting the barrel, not worry about hitting your suppressor, riding your suppressor yeah. on it. That was something we experienced in the past. And I don't think yeah. anybody was really running into that this time around, were they? I don't, I don't think so. I think everybody um, kind of figured that out. Yeah. In the riding the suppressor thing really was only an issue with guys running shorties last yep. year. Yeah, true. Um, I think that we maybe use slightly different props this year mm -hmm. there were a couple of props that we didn't didn't do so much time with yeah that we had used in years past and then i think guys were much more aware of yeah. you know, is my is my handguard on the on the prop or is the suppressor on the prop yeah so um conditions uh for shooting it was gorgeous uh temperatures i don't know what we, what 70 some degrees some, yeah maybe high 70s um the wind at 12 o'clock. Yeah, wind. Yeah, we, yeah. The wind was easy. Um, it was coming right at you, so we really didn't have to make any wind calls or anything like that. Um, so the conditions were really kind of perfect to get dialed in. Um, it was interesting that a number of guys knew that their zero, based on a load or based on their optic, um, that their zero wasn't like a target shooters or long range shooter zero, where they were they had cheated one way or the other just based on adjustments on the optic. And, and at 300, that, that was something that definitely had to be accounted for uh, because where you know, hey, because of my scope, I'm, I've got a 25-meter zero or a 50-meter zero, and my scope's getting me within a half an inch consistently, but it's a half inch left. Well, that half inch left becomes a couple inches left and, and stuff like that. And when you start shooting at a four-inch plate at 300 yards, it, that becomes interesting. Um, so some of that cropped up. Also had some guys, um, probably the biggest kick in the teeth for everybody outside of just getting back into the basic fundamentals of shooting uh, was switching ammo. Yeah. But a couple guys on accident, you know, grabbed, they were running, uh, you know, 62 grain 
uh, match ammo or 69 grain match ammo or some 75 grain match ammo and didn't want to necessarily burn that much ammo or didn't realize it and grab the 55 grain, a mag of 55 grain. Um, and you know, you start changing your, your holds by, you know, you know, your point of aim, point of impact shifts by a couple inches at 300 going from one round to another. And those became low misses or high misses and on those plates. And it was kind of like, Oh, Oh crap. That's right. Yeah. Or guys forgot what ammo they zeroed their skip for. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. We'll leave that alone. So, um, That'll, that'll mess you up too, though. Well, or or you zeroed it for a specific ammo, and you're just not going to shoot that ammo to burn yeah. that ammo up in a drill like this where we went. Yeah. Because that was a fair amount of rounds. I don't know how many rounds you shot. I want to say, yeah, I don't know if I shot over 100 rounds or not. I maybe shot, I shot 120. Nah, see, I, I, shot, I shot more because I took an opportunity to make a couple hits each time. Um, so I probably shot a, a little bit over 100 rounds. Plus, I ran the plates at the end a few different times just having fun, too. So, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you start looking at ammo, if you start looking at cheap ammo at 70 cents around, um, or more, and then you start looking at good ammo at ridiculous prices, um, I get the idea of not wanting to burn up, you know, a hundred rounds of whatever your duty ammo is or whatever your, you know, your game time ammo is. Yeah, so to, to kind of mitigate that issue, um, having run low power variables now for almost a decade, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I like to do if I'm going to zero the gun. Um, I'll zero it with the ammo I primarily shoot, and then any of the other ammo that I might end up having to use, I'll shoot like a three-round group, and then note the the correction. Yeah. So I can just you know dial you know, usually on a on a mill scope, it's within probably two tenths of a mill mm-hmm. the correction. But again, that. you know we start pushing distance out, two tenths of a mill becomes a significant amount of linear distance. Yep. So it is a, a needed correction to put into the scope. Yeah. Um, but it allows you to, to move around between ammo types relatively easily Yep. and without having to constantly re- officially re-zero the gun. Yeah, and I did the exact opposite. I, I zeroed the gun with party ammo, and then the S&B stuff, I'd taken it out and run a few rounds through it just to see where it was hitting at um, You know, previously and then just made a note of that. And I've, I've gotten a, you know a podcast or an article or something I read somewhere, got back into the reminder of having a dope book for each rifle, Knowing what the making those notes, going back through those notes and finding it, um, that is a that is a, a, a front couple page note, um, you know, shooting day notes, how many rounds, conditions, things like that. Uh, a little bit different, but on on a, on a zeroing on zeroing the gun and having that different information, I tend to put that in the first page or two of that dope book so that I don't have to go looking through the whole book to find it. Um, I'm sure at some point I'll run out of space, but these are also on like little three by five right in the range. So I'm going to run out of space with it anyway. So no big yeah. deal. I'll carry that over at the next one. So, uh, but yeah, knowing that was nice because I, I, I'd gone out and just knew and made the quick adjustment and went on. So, yep. Um, what else? I'm trying to think of what, I mean, there's really, uh, I don't think, I don't think there were any epiphanies that anybody had. I think everybody kind of came back to saying fundamentals and, and, you know, and go from there. Nobody had any significant equipment issues. Um, yeah, the biggest thing, you know, again, knowing, having a really solid understanding of what the bullet's doing Yep. Uh, from a from an external ballistic standpoint. Yep. So once the bullet leaves the muzzle, um, you know, to when it hits the target, um, I know a number of guys had gotten up early and actually chronographed their guns Yeah. Uh, so that they were able to run their bullet and their velocities through a website called JBM Ballistics, which gives you a very nice um, drop table and yep. windage chart. Um, 
free open source effectively. Yeah. Um, really effective. Um, if you don't have a chronograph, you know, spending the hundred bucks or 150 bucks to pick one up. Yeah. Um, well worth having in your equipment of shooting stuff. Um, maybe not something you need, you know, if you're only shooting inside of 50 yards, True. but having, having realistic ballistic data for your gun, um, becomes super important once you get past about 200. Yeah. And it, and, and that also becomes a critical conversation when you go into shorter barrels because you're losing velocity and yep. the shorter the barrel gets, the more velocity you lose. Uh, it, you know, generally the assumption with like M855 or even, even, uh, M193, either one of those is that you're losing about 300 feet per second from 20 inches to 16. But when you go from 16 to 12, that same four inches drops a lot more velocity. Um, and, the, and there are a couple of guys shocked to find out <clears throat> that what they thought was going to be a 2,700 foot per second load was actually below 2,600 feet per second. Um, and, and that with that bullet, especially with a 55 grain bullet, yeah. that's bleeding velocity bad and the wind really affects it. Huge, huge difference. Um, if you're running short barrel guns and you can run the heavier ammo, if you're one and seven or one and eight twist, will do it and shoot it well. Um, you know, definitely want to go with the heavier bullets with the shorties, uh, cause it does work quite a bit better at distance. Um, and it's always surprising that, you know, you guys out there and they're like, oh, 11 and a half inch gun at 300 yards or an AR pistol at 300 yards. How's that work? Well, it goes really pink well. when it hits the plate and it's no big deal. Um, it's still a rifle. It's just a short rifle. Um, and the reality Unless is... Unless it's a pistol and then it's a pistol. Exactly. Yes. That's totally different. Got to get your points in line. Never trust somebody with an up, down smile, upside down smile. Never, ever trust somebody with an upside down smile. Anyway. Um... Defund the ATF hashtag. Um, so anyway, working your way through that, yeah, the, it, it was it was cool to see those numbers and be able to put them in, and then go confirm the data. Yeah, you know, and I think I think everybody had that the, the, it corresponded exactly the way it should have out of the data. So yeah, yeah. yep, yep, yep. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Did you use? Um, were you using a sling to shoot with at all? No, because I forgot to bring a sling for my rifle. Oh my god! It's not like yeah. you don't own a gun store or something like that. Whatever. Yeah, that was actually a, that was kind of a big fail on my part because my rifle was big and heavy and yeah, not fun to lug around without a sling. Yeah, I I don't think I saw anyone else using a sling to shoot with. Maybe except for the other Brian. The other Brian was wrapping around the arm, but I think that's more a function of just how he holds the sling and runs the yeah. sling. I don't know if that was being used as a shooting sling. Uh, but I really didn't notice anybody availing themselves of the sling on the gun. Yeah, I think, and honestly, most guys with the because we had the props. Yeah. And there were ways to brace the gun. Yeah. It was a lot more. Let's get the forend and a vertical grip jammed up on something. Yep. Or let's get a bipod jammed up on something. Yeah. Or let's actually deploy the bipod. Yeah. And use the bipod as a bipod on yeah. something. Yeah. Um, made a really big difference. Um, I know I I absolutely love my Magpul bipod. Um, both in conventional and unconventional forms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had one opportunity. One of the barricades was actually a set of stairs that were open on the back. Yeah. And being able to adjust the bipod so you were up above the stair, um, but just above it so you could still see through it. Yeah. Um, worked really well. Um, super stable shooting position. Yeah, and I was I did like I said I, on that one. That was another one where I pushed the bipod through and then pulled back against that knurled nut on the bottom. It also worked well from sitting, going about halfway up the stairs, same mm -hmm. thing, jamming it through, pulling it back into it, was actually really comfortable. Um, and I was able, that was actually one of the places I was able to make, from sitting, was able to make a hit on the four inch plate, um, and it just felt stable. It's like, oh, I'm yeah. gonna go for the little guy this time, so. 
Yeah, yeah. and then on the rocks, um, trying to look a little bit more tactically thinking, mm -hmm. um, trying to get you know on the side of the rock. Yeah. Uh, so it's exposing the minimal amount of me and the gun as I needed to. Yeah. Um, the bipod worked really well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. 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 We have we have at the moment a full collection of Magpul bipods in stock. Yeah. Um, for a hundred and thirty bucks. Um, one of the best investments you can make, you know, for a DMR-ish kind of gun. Yeah. Uh, or if you're looking to, you know, go plank or go shoot, you know, steel targets at distance. Um, gives you a lot of stability. Um, really yeah. easy to use. Super solid. Uh, I would yeah, say and not is, and not grotesquely large and pretty lightweight. Yeah. Yeah. And the adjustability is pretty slick too. Um, they, they, you know, the the height adjustability is fine enough to be functional. Um, you know, so yeah, the, definitely a big fan of that. The, the little rubber feet works surprisingly well too. And if you do have higher end bipods, um, the feet are also interchangeable with the Atlas spikes and stuff like that. Uh, so if you're wanting to do something like that, you could do that too. So good, good stuff. Um, uh, one last thing I'll throw out there, or, or I don't know if it's the last thing I'll throw out there anyway. Um, the mag, uh, run the mag out of your gun. Uh, if, if your gun will not run, shooting off the magazine if you you know use as a monopod dig it into the dirt and your gun won't function doing that um you may have a spec issue either with the gun or with the mags that you're running when you start working off of things like rocks or things like a rooftop the magazine becomes a great way to stabilize the gun because you can grind the forehand into the peak and you can grind the magazine in somewhere back slope down behind it and get a really stable position really quickly um, and just kind of dial it up mm -hmm. by sliding the gun back and forth. Um, there are a couple times where I, I ran this, I ran a number of the barricades with 20s and swapped out mags with 30s just to see the difference. Um, and there were a couple times where the 30 round mag was advantageous. There were a couple times where the 20 round mag is advantageous. Uh, but I would say for long range shooting with an AR platform weapon, having a 20 round mag on you and maybe having a 30 round mag on you for that specific reason might be something to consider yeah. as well. Cause you could change mags in two seconds flat, no big deal. And then and then yeah. have that adva that advantage if it's there for you, especially with a non bipodded gun. Yeah, and to, to that extent too, uh, we sell a little widget called the Magpod. Yep, uh, which fits on an, an M2 um, P Mag that gives you a, a nice flat surface along the full length of the bottom of the magazine. Yep. So you're not trying to balance on just the heel of the mag, but you get a solid position on the toe as well. Yeah, uh, and if you are you know monopod on the magazine, that makes a really big difference. Here's the guy that says that magpod's worth a half MOA. Is that a DeFore thing? It's, I believe yeah. that yeah, it's Cal DeFore. Um, Mike Panone's a big fan too. Yeah, I was saying that that the magpod's a half MOA of accuracy, um, just of yeah. stabilization, of stabilization. Yeah. How about that? We'll use that. I, I wanted one of one of the two. I think it was DeFore that said you know this this will get you a half MOA off the ground. Um, more noticeable if you're running a mil spec trigger because uh, yeah. it takes longer to run the trigger. Yeah, uh, I've seen that zeroing guns. Um, yeah. You're just trying to get a rough zero at 50 yards. Yeah, um, running a magpod versus not running a magpod, um, big difference. Yep, absolutely. So again, if your gun won't run off the mag, it's probably out of spec. Uh, that's that. That's kind of a not not a wives' tale. It's kind of a condition of guys coming out of the military where guns were so beat up and mags were so beat up. Um, you know, that, that, that you, if you put it on the ground, it wouldn't work. It, it, it should. Or it was, you know, superstitions around can't carry rules that yeah. don't apply in the real world. Yep. So, yeah. So guys, if you, uh, if you, again, if you have access to, you know, a, a little bit longer range, we're not going to call this long range shooting. We're calling it intermediate range shooting. If you got access to, 
you know, two, three, four, five hundred yards. Um, you know, going out and, and spending some time doing this, spending some time taking those shots and figuring out what your gun's going to do. Uh, do the do the homework up front. Get your velocities. Uh, you know, get your gun set up. Get a good good hard zero, um, and then you know get get your information in a data in a data table like the JBM on your phone, or or get or print it out and map it out and have it ready to go. Maybe for a couple different loads and go out and play around and see what the, see how the gun actually behaves. You know, at 200, 300, etc., and and have a good time with it. Um, if you've got access to steel targets and you can safely use them in your environment. Uh, definitely take out some big ants and littles. Um, have some fun chasing the littles because the bigs will get boring quick if you've got everything nailed down well. Uh, I know a lot of our guys spent the first half of that just making sure position-wise getting hits on the big plate, but pretty quickly we're going, okay, I'm shooting at the little plate or the medium plate or whatever. Um, you know, if you can do that, go do that. It's a good time. Uh, if you've got a walk down range and check paper, no worries. Walk down range and check paper. You know, to give the gun yeah, time to get cool all your down. Steps. Too. Yeah, get all your steps in. So, but give the gun time to cool down. And put up a bunch, again, put up a bunch of paper and shoot at different targets. Know what you were shooting at, when and why, and with what ammo, etc. Um, make notes of that so when you go down to check those targets, you've got data on what you're actually doing. But it's fun collecting this kind of information and learning what the gun's capable of. Because I think a lot of folks don't have access to 300 yards. And when they get out and do it, it's, it I get why PRS is addicting. Um, and if I had money just falling out of my ears, that'd be something In I'd want to do. In time. I, that's something I'd want to do. I'm kind of jealous of the guys that do it and they're good at it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Uh, on that note, um, please uh, follow us along on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we try to post new things we get in the store up to their um, training ideas, other stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, most of the guns at the moment are going on Facebook. Um, Instagram's gone kind of full commie with some things. So trying to stay on there as long as we can. Uh, yeah, sign up for our email newsletter. It comes out on Fridays. You can sign up for that at capcityoutfitters.com or send us an email to info at capcityoutfitters.com and we will add you to the newsletter list. Also on the website, you can find valuable information such as how to do an FFL transfer or how to purchase a suppressor via our storefront over at silencershop.com. Um, lastly, we look forward to seeing you here at the store. Uh, we're in Hilliard, Ohio, 4465 Cemetery Road. We're in front of the Aldi's. We're directly next to Louis Fusion Grill. Um, we're running hours 10 to 5, Tuesday through Saturday, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for tuning in, guys.